I want to ask you a question this morning. Have you ever noticed how uncomfortable people are when nothing is going on? You ever notice that? From time to time, I will ask people to observe a moment of silence as a part of a worship service, for example. And for most of us, 30 seconds in a situation like that seems like an eternity. The great uh, pianist Rachmaninoff tells a story about giving a piano recital when he was very young. And he began with a sonata by Beethoven that had several very long rests in the sonata. And during one of those long rests, a motherly lady leaned forward and patted him on the shoulder and said, Honey, why don't you just play something that you already know? I guess there is an an awkwardness in silence, isn't there? And there's a, a difficulty in waiting for whatever it is that we're waiting for. Do you remember your first date? Or even worse, do you remember a blind date with someone that you had absolutely nothing in common with? Do you remember those long, painful periods of silence while sitting at the restaurant table or driving along in the car together? We're not very good at handling silence. It's awkward. It's confusing. And we're not very good at waiting for anything. I heard about a man at a restaurant who stopped a waiter passing by and said, Excuse me, but how long have you been working here? And the waiter replied, Oh, about a year. And the man said in exasperation, Well, in that case, it couldn't have been you that I gave my order to. Waiting is no fun. But it can be funny. (laughs) Over the next several weeks, our boys and girls will become very restless with expectation and anticipation, waiting for the coming of Christmas. And so it is with the people of God. The Old Testament concluded with the people of Israel waiting for the coming of Messiah. The New Testament concludes with the followers of Jesus waiting for Christ's return. And we have been waiting now for for more than 2,000 years for that event. And waiting is is hard to do. Sherwood Wirt deals with the subject of waiting in his book titled Freshness of the Spirit. And he reminds us that much of our lives is spent waiting. Think of the nations, he says, waiting for their rulers to die. Oppressed people waiting for a deliverer who will lift the yoke of the, ty- of the tyrant. Merchant traders waiting for their ship to come in. Lord Reith, the founder of the BBC, says that he spent virtually the entire period of World War II by, by the telephone waiting for Winston Churchill to call him. But he never called. And think of all the ordinary people today waiting 
at the airport, at the bus depot, at the doctor's office, at the, the amusement park, at the bowling alley, at the post office, at the ticket counter, at the unemployment office, at the social security office, and waiting for this sermon to be over so we can beat the Methodists to the restaurants. It seems that society has become one vast waiting room. But I'd like for us to focus our thoughts for today on the subject of waiting for the return of the Messiah. You know, much of the the New Testament is, is devoted to the second coming of Christ. And we dare not ignore these important biblical teachings. Nonetheless, there are some some very clear biblical principles for those of us who wait. And the first principle is this. Be patient. Be patient. You know, Jesus was as explicit as he could possibly be on this subject. No one knows the hour or even the day when the Son of Man shall return, he says. He will come as a thief in the night. No one knows. Nobody knows. And I know it's, it's good box office among some Christians these days to always be looking for the right signs for Jesus' return. And, and some preachers will preach on nothing else. And some Christian writers have gotten pretty wealthy by stirring the imaginations of their readers concerning how and when Jesus will return. But you know something? There are two dangers in trying to rush God. And the first one is that in constantly looking toward the sky, we will ignore our, our responsibilities here and now. Or as the, the saying goes, We are so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good. You ever heard that? Sometimes that can be true. You may know the story of the little boy who returned from his first two weeks at uh, at summer camp. And he showed his mother two badges that he had earned, that he had won there. And one was for making great improvements in his swimming skills. And the other one was for naming the most birds on a nature hike. But then there was another blue ribbon in his pocket, and his mother asked him about that. And he said, oh, that's nothing. I got that for having the neatest packed bag when we were ready to leave. And so his mother said, well, that's great. I'm proud of you, son. And he said, oh, it's no big deal. I never unpacked it in the first place. (laughs) Well, folks, if, if we're constantly looking for God... To right all of the world's wrongs someday and in some cataclysmic conclusion to life here on earth, then we may never unpack our bags while we are here and realize that it is here and now where God has placed us, not the sweet by and by. That's coming later, but we're here and now and it's here and now where we should focus our efforts in living the life that Christ has called us to live today. And we can't do that if we are so focused on the then and there that we ignore the here and now. 
As Thomas Carlyle once said, our main business is not to see what dimly lies at a distance, but to do what clearly lies at hand. So let us not be so busy looking to the skies that we ignore our responsibilities here. The second danger in trying to rush God is that many of us will be taken in by false messiahs. And there are a lot of them out there. The Bible talks about false messiahs all the time. And they're out there even today. Back in 1978, the whole world was shocked by reports from Jonestown, Guyana, where the Reverend Jim Jones led hundreds of people into one of history's darkest hours, mass suicides and murders. And these were these were not ignorant, primitive savages in a far off land. These were American citizens who had fallen under the leadership of a madman. We don't see many signs these days of of the Moonies. You remember the Moonies? We don't see them very often these days. Their their founder, Reverend Sung Myung Moon, uh, and his uh, Unification Church have kind of faded into the background. But at one point, he boasted considerable political clout. He invested heavily in the elections of Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan's. I don't know if you know this or not, but he owned one of the largest newspapers here in the United States. But Reverend Moon built his empire by putting young people out on the streets, selling flowers on street corners. And Moon preaches that there there is a new Messiah that is soon to come and begin begin his work. And he says that this new Messiah is already here on earth and that he was born in Korea during the 20th century. I wonder who he might be talking about. (laughs) My friends, false messiahs are always with us. And we we need not even deal with such self-deluded creatures as mass murderer Charles Manson, who gathered a group of seemingly intelligent young adults as his followers. Manson once said, my philosophy is, don't think. (laughs) Don't think. Well, you know what? That is precisely the philosophy that is subtly expressed by all false messiahs. Don't think. For you see, reason is the enemy of all fanatics. But false messiahs do come They come around every once in a while, and those who are eager to move God along can easily fall prey to their delusions. So be patient. No one knows the day or the hour of Christ's coming. God has spent millions of years and forming this earth and creating the world and all the universe, and it's been 2,000 years since Messiah came to the world, and, and God has God's own timetable. It may be today or it may be another 2,000 years from now, but let no one mislead you. Be patient. The second admonition for waiting on the Lord is be faithful. Be faithful. Some of you may remember the ancient epic poem by Homer, the, the Odyssey. It's a story of Odysseus who traveled the world pursuing many adventures while back 
At home, his beautiful wife Penelope was being pursued by various suitors trying to take advantage of Odysseus's absence. But in order to keep the suitors at bay, Penelope announced that when she finished weaving a particular garment that she would choose among these persistent pursuers. However, there was something that these suitors did not know. For you see, each night Penelope would undo the stitches that she had put in during the daytime. And so she remained faithful to Odysseus until he returned. That's our call as well, my friends. To be faithful while we wait. While we wait for Christ's return, we are, we are Christ's body. We are Christ's body in the world. And we are called to do Christ's work here in the world. The church has been serving the world in Christ's name for 2,000 years now. And now's not the time to let up. And I know that in society, especially among those who are not a part of the church, there's a lot of criticism of the church sometimes. And some of that criticism may be justified. Some of it's not. But the truth is, we're not perfect. Some of us, some of what we do is, is very mundane. But we should not overlook the church's problems, but neither should we hide the church's accomplishments. And you know something that strikes me? It strikes me how often... The church does good in people's lives. And I cannot tell you how many times people have come up to me, especially after suffering through some hardship in their lives, maybe the loss of a loved one or a a problem with their health or an economic crisis or something like that. I cannot tell you how many times people have come up to me and said they don't know how they would make it without their church. And that's true, isn't it? Some of you may know the story of writer Anne Lamott. When she was 25 years old, her father died after a a struggle, a long struggle with brain cancer. And over the next few years, Anne herself began to suffer from an overwhelming sense of desperation and fear. She tried to suppress that desperation and fear with alcohol and and pills. And even though she did manage to write and publish several successful novels at the time, it was clear that her life was spinning out of control. She wrote her memoirs titled Traveling Mercies, and in that In that book, she writes about this dark period of her life. And and most importantly, she tells about how a community of Christian faith, a neighborhood church called St. Andrews, came to her rescue and literally pulled her out of the deep hole that she was in. I think as a parable, she tells this story in her book about a little girl who was lost This little girl ran up and down the streets of the big city that where her family lived, but she couldn't find a single landmark that was familiar to her. She was frightened and desperate. And then finally a policeman stopped and and, to help her out. And 
He put her in the passenger seat of his car and they drove around the neighborhood until she finally saw her church. And she pointed it out to the policeman and then she told him firmly, you can let me out now. This is my church and I can always find my way home from here. And Lamont writes, that's why I have stayed so close to my church. Because no matter how bad I am feeling, no matter how lost or lonely or frightened I am, when I see the faces of the people at my church, when I hear their tawny voices, I can always find my way home. My friends, we are the body of Christ in the world today. So be patient and be faithful. But one more thing, be prepared. Be prepared for Christ's coming. Be prepared if he should come today. Be prepared if it should be another thousand years or more. Be prepared at any cost. For we simply do not know what tomorrow may bring. Do you know what's going to happen tomorrow? I don't. We may have some ideas, but we're not guaranteed anything. I read recently that when the city fathers of New York City planned the, for the future growth of their city, as they were just establishing the town, they laid out the streets and numbered them from the center of the, of the city outwards. And when they began, there were only about six or seven streets. And in their planning maps, they projected how large they thought the city might grow. And reaching beyond their wildest imagination, they drew streets on the map all the way out to 19th Street, which they called Boundary Street because they were sure that that was as large as New York City would ever become. Well, at last count, the city had reached 284th Street, <laughs> far exceeding their expectations. So be careful when you try to predict the future. For today's experts often turn out to be tomorrow's fools. You know, there's still so much that we don't know about all the things that matter most. And predictions can only be based on our current knowledge. And a lot of times that knowledge is incomplete and, and flawed. And so we really can't look to the future with much accuracy. I mean, who could have predicted the wars that ravaged our planet in the 20th century? Who could have predicted the scourge of terrorism in our own time? What wise person predicted the collapse of both the real estate market and our major financial institutions just last year? Even without, with all the latest supercomputers, economists cannot predict with any certainty what our dollar will be worth next year. As one man has put it, if all the economists in the world were laid end to end, they still couldn't reach a conclusion. We worry about global warming, but a recent report suggested that the explosion of one enormous volcano could theoretically blot out the sun and spell an end to human existence on this planet. 
Fact is, we don't know what the future may bring. We may be here another million years, but on the other hand, today may be our last day on earth. But Jesus tells us to trust God and to wait. Don't worry too much about what tomorrow will bring. But at the same time, prepare yourself. Prepare yourself emotionally and mentally and spiritually and physically for whatever may come. Be patient. Be faithful. And be prepared. In the Greek language, there are two words for time. One is kairos and the other is chronos. Chronos, as in what time is it, is a neutral kind of word. But kairos, on the other hand, is a a word that's charged with power. As in the phrase, this is the appointed time. And that's the word that Paul uses when he talks about the time of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a time appointed by God and known only by God. And it is a time of great power. And this may be the time. Or it may not. But it is certainly the time to take stock of our lives to see if we are prepared for an unknowable future. And so here's my challenge to each of you this morning. Live each moment as if it were your last moment. The good that you would do, do it now. The love that you would give, give it now. The commitment that you would make, make it now. As John Rushkin once said, let every dawn of morning be to you as the beginning of life and every setting sun be to you as its close. Then let every one of these short lives leave its sure record of some kindly thing done for others and some goodly strength or knowledge gained for yourself. This may be the hour. And that's the lesson for this first Sunday of Advent. Be patient. Be faithful. Be prepared. The Lord is come. Amen. We're going to sing together a hymn of response in the garden, number 187. And there may be someone here today who needs to make a commitment to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been waiting. Maybe that time has come. We are not guaranteed another day. And I don't want to sound like an evangelist kind of trying to pull at your heartstrings, but God knows your situation in life. God knows where you are on your spiritual journey. And God is desirous of sharing, of of having that relationship with you, of sharing God's life with you in a very special way. And if you've never made that commitment today, this is a part of the being prepared that I was talking about earlier. Prepare yourself for the coming of the Lord. Prepare yourself for that relationship with God by giving your heart over to to the Lord, accepting Him as your Lord and Savior, and committing your life to the life that Messiah 
has called you to live. Perhaps you're looking for a church to be a part of. Maybe today's the day to make that step and to unite with our church. Or maybe you just need to come and pray. Maybe some things in your life that are not in line with the way things should be. And maybe you need prayer or maybe you just need to come and get some things right with God. We invite you to come as we sing together in the garden. and mighty Lord, how we love you for being everything to us. Thank you for tomorrow and for all of its possibilities, for all its signs and wonders pointing to your presence in our world today. Lord, you have taught us to walk in your way, to watch and to pray for your coming without fear or apprehension. We long to see you face to face, O God. But until that day, we wait with patience, with faithfulness, and ever prepared and ready. Amen.